Welcome to Quest, where we believe a great faith, great church experience, and great life is grounded in authentic relationship with God and living life with friends. Join us today in changing our world one friendship at a time. If you would like more information about connecting at Quest, stay tuned after the message. Isn't it a stark realization, and some of you have experienced this sadly recently, where you've been at someone's gravestone? And you see the dates when they were born and when they died, and there's just this little dash in between. Maybe you've heard the phrase that it's not the dates, but the dash. It's a little cliche, but the dash represents all the living and all the breathing that you and I do over the years that we're here on earth. And it leads us to the question, what is the whole point of living? And what's our goal? A group of theologians in the 1600s worked to summarize the Christian doctrines to help bring more clarity for Christians, and uh, it's called the Westminster Catechism. It's been valued for centuries as one of the examples of a powerful, succinct summary of the Christian faith. The first question they address is this, what is the chief end of man? What is life all about? And many of you probably know the answer, it is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But what does glorify God mean? Well, the basic meaning of the word is of glory is heavy in weight. When we glorify God, we show the weight. We show the importance of his presence. We honor who he is. And this value we place on him affects everything we do. Jesus shows us the glorifying God looks like love the Lord your God with your, all your heart and your soul and all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is to love your neighbor as yourself, meaning we glorify God in everything we do, how we love God, how we love ourselves, how we love others. That affects every aspect of our living, of our work, of our rest, of our play. It is all a venue for worship and glorifying God. Paul makes it clear when he says, so whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. In all we do, our lives reflect God and doing so, and and, and when we do that, reflect him, uh, we enjoy him and we enjoy life fully. The obvious question though is, how is my everyday life doing in glorifying God and enjoying him forever? And that's why we want to take time today in our series of deeper work to just kind of sit back, rock in the chair, ponder this fundamental described as the main purpose of living, which is worship. What does worship really mean? For many of us, our thoughts go right to singing songs. Now, worship includes singing, but it is so much more than that as well. For example, the Book of Common Prayer has been used by many many Anglican and other denominations since the 1600s in worship. It provides some really beautiful liturgy, including some incredibly beautifully written prayers. They define glorifying and worshiping God by the term adoration. And they describe adoration as the lifting up of the heart and the mind to God, asking nothing but to enjoy God's presence. But for some... This adoration of God, this praise of God, this worship of God creates issues for them. C.S. Lewis is one of them, the author of Narnia and so many other profound Christian apologetics. As an Oxford professor, he was an atheist until age 32 when he became a Christian. One of the great obstacles he had to overcome was believing that the God of the Bible was 
Well, when he read Psalms, he kind of seemed like God constantly demanded praise, which seemed like an insecure, narcissistic God was craving worship. It's like to him, when he read that, it was like to God was some kind of egomaniac who continually needed to be told by people how great he was. And for some, that struggle still persists today, and I get it. I mean, Lewis's questions were, how do you worship a God who is self-exalting and so self-centered as the God of the Bible? That's what he thought at that time. A God who is constantly pointing to his own greatness and telling people they should recognize his greatness and tell him how much they're amazed by his greatness. Later in his book, The Reflections on the Psalms, C.S. Lewis describes it this way. He says, When I first began to draw near to belief in God, and even for some time after it had been given to me, I found a stumbling block in the demand so clamorously made by all religious people that we should praise God, still more in the suggestion that God himself demanded it. We all despise the man who demands continued assurance of his own virtue, intelligence, or delightfulness. We despise still more the crowd of people around every dictator, every millionaire, every celebrity who, gratify, to, who demands that, that, to gratify that demand. Thus a picture at once ludicrous and horrible, he says, both of God and, us, and his worshipers threatened to appear in my mind. But then he says, I did not see that it is in the process of being worshipped that God communicates his presence to men. It is not, of course, the only way, but for many people at many times, the fair beauty of the Lord is revealed chiefly or only while they worship him together. See, God's command for us to worship him, rightly seen, is not self-centered. It isn't egotistic. Think of it this way. If we truly love someone, someone, I mean really love them, we will be bowled over and raptured with love of them and we will want to praise them and we'll want to enjoy them and celebrate who they are and imagine that they also then love us even more deeply in return. When we praise, we then also experience the, of the, of the one that we love, the love of the one we love. When God asks us to glorify him, he is inviting us to enjoy who he is and all that that means. There's a pastor and author, Pete Grieg, who started the 24-7 prayer movement. It's reached a number of nations, about half the nations in the world. He addresses this confusion about God commanding us to glorify him. And he does it through describing his love for his wife. He says he didn't marry her because it looked good on a spreadsheet. Anybody marry because it looked good on a spreadsheet? Hopefully not. He married her because he absolutely loved her. He loved being close. They had these, and then they, they got closer and closer, and they had these messy miracles called children. And he says they are the biggest blessing of his life, but that wasn't the aim. The aim was each other. And in the same way, when we give ourselves to God in a relationship with him through adoration and intimacy and gratefulness, there are these, the, the, these miraculous and messy consequences that we call answered prayers. And that the answers are not our primary aim. 
The primary aim of prayer is relationship. It is adoration. It is knowing the love of God and loving God. The author of the message paraphrase of the Bible, Eugene Peterson, says it this way. He says, Worship is an act that develops feelings for God, not a feeling for God that is expressed in an act of worship. When we obey the command to praise God and worship, our deep essential need to be in relationship with God is nurtured. Pete Gregg, also who authored the prayer course, which some of you are currently taking here, talks about how easy it is to jump into uh, prayer asking God for things. However, Jesus gives us some clear guidance to his followers on how to pray in what we call the Lord's Prayer. And it starts out, Our Father in heaven, hallowed or holy, reverenced be your name. See, the first step is, in a sense, to pause, to be still and know that I am God, to Stop talking to God and focus on the wonder of who God is and adore him. Greg illustrates this through the differences between a microscope and a telescope in describing how this pause to adore God can be so impactful in our lives. He says much of our lives is, are, it can be spent staring down a microscope, kind of obsessing about ourselves, about our needs, about our thoughts, the things we want from God and need from God, many of those needs are important, right? And yet Jesus is saying, pause first and use the telescope instead. A telescope is something that helps us look upward and outward. It helps us see this vast world that is so much bigger and gives us a bigger perspective. See, we're no longer looking at the tiny pieces displayed under a microscope. We're looking at this vast st- vastness of the stars and the galaxies in the sky. And when we look up, we can get lost in looking at something that is so much bigger than ourselves. And that's what remembering to look first at who God is does for us. He is the creator of all things. He is incredibly capable. He is to be holy and hallowed, and and yet he is also our father, the one who loves us deeply and perfectly. If we start off with the microscope looking at all of our needs, we miss out on who God is and who we are really talking to. Using the telescope, pausing to adore, helps us remember that prayer is not transactional. It's not that, here, is, here God, this is what I need, please give it to me. Prayer is about relationship and the one in whom we can trust because, because he loves us. Let's just look at how Peter and John prayed. This is right after Jesus was resurrected and his followers experienced the power of the Holy Spirit. And it's in Acts 4, Peter and John were brought before a religious court and they were told to stop preaching about Jesus or their lives would be threatened. And the people who threatened their lives had just killed Jesus, so it's a reasonable threat to believe. And what do they do? They pray. And let's listen to their prayer for a second. They say, Sovereign Lord, You made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. 
You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And it goes on and says, After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. It's a powerful prayer. 137 words long, and only the last 35 words are the microscope asking God to do anything. 74% of the prayer is talking about God, glorifying God, adoring God, things that God already knows about himself, so why would we do it? See, Peter and John are using the telescope. They're focusing on the bigness of God before they use the microscope of their immediate concerns and their needs so that they can reorient their lives and trust. See, there's this painting that hangs in the National Gallery in London by the 15th century Italian painter Filippino uh, Lippi. It depicts Mary, the mother of Jesus, with the baby of Jesus on her lap, along with two saints, Jerome and Dominic, kneeling at her feet. And viewed straight on, if you look at it closely, the perspective is off. It looks like the people on the hills in the back might fall off the picture. The saints seem awkwardly painted on it. There's a renowned art critic, Robert Cumming, who was looking at it at the National Gallery, and all of a sudden he realized the painting was not meant to hang in a gallery. It was intended to be seen from the altar kneeling in prayer. He got down on his knees And the painting morphed, and everything seemed in its proper perspective. And see, that's the mistake we can make. We can forget to look at life from the right perspective. Worship helps us gain that right perspective. Worship, adoration, glorifying God are about reorienting our perspective to the greatness and the power and the perfect love with our creator God who is also our perfectly good father. Yet let's pull into worship of God with song. Again, worship is much more than singing, but it is not less than that either. Biblically, worship, singing, and music go hand in hand. This summer, Stephanie, our children's pastor, had our, had our children look at the different Hebrew words uh, there are for praise. They spent much of the summer helping them understand and expand their concept of worship. And In English, we only have one word for praise, but in Hebrew, there are seven, and that kind of leaves us at a disadvantage. It's similar to how we have one word for love, and yet Greek has four words for love, storge, phileo, agape, and eros. Those differences in love hopefully help us find kind of a different intensity between how we love the Buckeyes and ice cream compared to our families and Jesus. I hope, at least. I'm not sure that's the case with all of you, but hopefully we'll disciple you to the point that that's true. (laughs) The same applies to praise and worship. There are different kinds of praise in the Bible, and when we look at the different expressions of praise, 
we can be more intentional in how we worship. Some of the different words of praise involve how we express ourselves physically in worship. Again, isn't it true that when we experience something really good, like we get a raise at work or we see an incredible touchdown, a winning touchdown in a game, we celebrate and there's kind of this bodily response of joy that we have. We may jump, we may shout, we may even dance, we may just do a fist bump. I don't know what you do, but how often in worship again and singing here do we sit with our arms crossed and just kind of sit chill and quiet, giving an occasional toe tap? I know that Every time a pastor talks about worship, we talk about this, right? So it can kind of be cliche, but can I invite you just to let it go beyond cliche for you today? You know, I know some of us are less expressive. I'm one of those guys who's not highly expressive. I also know that sometimes in a large group setting to concentrate on God, we need a little bit more quiet to be more reflective and really connect. So I understand all that. However, because there are so many opinions and preferences on music, let's review kind of our expectations that we hear oftentimes in church about worship. Have you picked up the attitude that the worship music time is a little bit more of like a previews to the movie showing? Do you think Christian music just doesn't do it for me? It's just not what I like, so it's just not my thing? Have you found we leave music worship time thinking, did I like this music or what did I get out of this experience? See, those questions challenge us because a better question, the primary question of importance, really the only question of importance is was my engagement in worship today pleasing to God? Did I give him my best? Did I really seek to come and glorify God? If we, if we allow the first question to trump, the first three questions to trump our answer to the last question by not engaging fully, we are missing God. Now, I can sometimes struggle with singing worship. I can get distracted easily by words, especially repetitiveness. I've had thoughts when I read Revelation where it says, you know, the elders were singing, the angels were singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and who is always going to be, you know, whatever. I think that's beautiful. And also in my brokenness, I can't imagine going to heaven and doing that. That just sounds boring. I remember Wendy and me being in a college and we were in this Christian gathering where for several hours they had us keep singing this one song. It went like this. It said, I anticipate the inevitable, supernatural intervention of God. I expect a miracle. I expect a miracle. I expect a miracle. Obviously the ba-ba-bum really stood out, right? They went on for not two minutes, not 20 minutes. They went on with that same song for two hours, and I thought I was going to lose my mind. I don't know how much of it was God. Some of it was probably just a different cultural style, and that's okay. But I do want us to question why we worship and why we don't sometimes engage. And look at how we respond to our incredible God. 
and the incredible things he has done. Let me ask, who would you love to go see in concert? Some of you would probably say Queen. Anybody else you'd like to go see in concert? Yeah? Oh, man. Yeah, okay. That would be awesome. If you went and you were in the front row, again, this is cliche. It's said every time, but can we go past the cliche and honestly wrestle with this? If you were in the front row, would you be restrained at that concert? When we celebrate the truth of who God is, how do we not become expressive at some level with our being, with our voice, with our bodies? When we come to worship God in music, we come to bring an offering. It's our offering of praise to God. He does amazing things through us and through music. Amazing things are not our aim. Our aim is the relationship. It's great when wonderful things happen, but our focus is on reflecting upon and adoring this God who loves us so much and who's so very present with us. Again, classic example that's shared all the time is the worshiper of, uh, in a worshiper of a worshiper in the Bible is David. He was described as a man after going, God's own heart. He gets to worship the Ark of the Covenant is being brought back to Jerusalem. Many of you remember the story. It had been away from a long time. There's this incredible celebration. It meant God's presence was coming back to the city and to the, to the tabernacle, and the people were gathered. And what did David do? You remember? He took off his kingly robes and danced in his underwear, saying, wearing a linen ephod. David was dancing before the Lord with all of his might. And dancing was a part of their culture. But they weren't used to seeing the king dance or for the king to take off the trappings of his royal robes. It was a strong message to the nation about who they were and even more importantly, who God is. David was saying that God is God and we need to extravagantly adore him and love him. And you remember the story goes on. Michael, his wife, who was Saul's daughter, the previous kings, saw it different and differently. It says, and when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the ark, she despised him in her heart. She had never seen her father, Saul, dance. Maybe she had seen God's servants dance, but not the king. We see more of her heart when David was done celebrating. He came home. When David returned home to bless his household, Michael, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, going around half naked in full, of the slave, in full view of the slave girls and the servants as any vulgar fellow would. She despised his worship. It wasn't dignified. And some of this may be that we've got some people who are going to be more expressive than we are, more expressive than we're comfortable, but how many of us have sometimes despised the more expressive people and said, I never want to be that? Maybe the invitation isn't that you are ever going to be that way. Maybe you're not that expressive. Maybe that's not authentic to you, and that's okay. But how many of us have despised in our hearts people who have been more expressive? Yet David had to express his personal love for God. It was just in him. He had to do it. He did not want to delegate worship to anyone. He needed to do it. He needed to own it. So he takes off his clothes and worships God, foolish as it may have looked. 
Now, because I'm not one who's really very expressive, uh, uh, not at all like David, you don't want to see me in my tidy whities <laughs> Sorry. It had me think and question what an incredible leader, a British preacher in the 1900s, not known for expressiveness, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this. He said, a dislike of enthusiasm is one of the greatest hindrances to revival. Why? I pondered that this week. Why? Because a dislike of enthusiasm is not, it makes us unwilling to give our emotions and our whole being to God. It makes us unwilling to be enraptured by God. We have to stay somehow controlled, stoic, when we all know that if we truly are enraptured with someone, we are going to be expressive. Is the Bible asking me or someone like me who is less expressive to give my emotions in more expressiveness? Yeah, I think so. How many of you relate to or have been told you have the emotional expressiveness of Chuck Norris? I love that. My son, uh, when he moved out, left behind his Chuck Norris poster, and I love seeing it. But that's actually not accurate, right? This one is actually the real one. Chuck does not have any fear. That emotion does not exist for Chuck Norris, right? C.S. Lewis again challenges Norris's expressiveness, and in his own way by saying this, he says, the most valuable thing the Psalms do for me, C.S. Lewis is talking about himself in this, is to express the same delight in God which made David dance. I don't know if Lewis ever danced, but he's allowing this cliche to go deeper in his life and challenge him, challenge his expressiveness, challenge his willingness to adore and glorify God. Worship, adoration, glorifying God, as Lewis said earlier, causes us to know and delight in the presence of God. He realized as he read the Psalms, there was a lot of action. People were rising and jumping, and he realized that worship is much more than drinking a cup of tea and having an intellectual exercise. Worship is to be an offering. In worship, we want to give God a gift that reflects who we believe he really is. Worship is about the telescope. It is about repositioning our perspective in how we think about God. Going from here to there. He is so big. God knows that it is vital for us to remember who he is. A favorite passage of the Bible describes a woman of hum, uh, uh, who humbling, humbly and lavishly pours out expensive, exquisite perfume on Jesus' feet. The cost of the perfume was worth the average year's salary. The perfume may have been her whole inheritance. It may have been her entire pension. It was extremely precious. 
And she poured it all over Jesus' feet. And as you, as you remember from the story, Judas is horrified, thinking we could have done something else with that money. Now, he was robbing from the till, we find out later in the story. But he was said, you know, we could have spent it on the poor. We could have built a house. We could have done something else. And today we can have the same attitude. Why do we spend so much time in worship, especially in song? Why don't we do something more useful? I can't worship, some of us say, because I don't like the style of music. Maybe you could preach longer. Well, I don't know if anybody said that. (laughs) In the West, Christians have more knowledge than Christians throughout history have ever had. But we lack the experience of the presence of God far too often. And our faith remains a stoic idea way too much. And God is inviting us to a place where we change our perspective, where our lives are controlled and empowered by a perspective of how big, how awesome, how loving, how powerful, how magnificent he is. And as we worship, we become more and more aware of his presence with us. We become more and more confident that he loves us. We become more and more confident that he hears us, he communicates with us, he answers our prayers, he leads us, that he's with us. Let's become a people of extravagant, extravagant worship. We pray. Lord, I pray that your presence would come to us now in this moment. Whether we like this next song or not, Lord, would you help us give our voice and our heart and our emotions and our hopes and our dreams and our frustrations to you and adore who you are, the creator of all. And would you help us become more confident? in sensing and being aware of your presence. Would you pour your spirit out among us? Take a moment right now and just say, ask God, ask the Holy Spirit, where are you speaking to me? What are you saying to me? I can tell you one thing preparing for this message has been for me. It's been, instead of listening to 97.1 in the car, I've been playing some worship music, and I've been focusing on the worship music that does exactly what we talked about today. It extols God. There's a lot of boyfriend-girlfriend worship music out there. I'm not too interested in that. I'm interested in the worship for me that helps me realize how big God is. So maybe maybe that's what the Holy Spirit's saying to you. Just build something simple into your day. Maybe it's just one song a day. Maybe it's the song, So Will I, or something like that. You play each day to make yourself reorient. We serve the God of the universe. Where's God speaking to you? So now is the time as we, dis- as we dismiss that we dismiss to prayer. If you need to go, you're free to go. If you can join us for lunch at the pastors, I would absolutely love to have you join us. But we dismiss to prayer. And the reason we dismiss to prayer 
is because it's part of us learning to pray for one another. It's part of us learning to be confident in praying and hearing the voice of God and seeing his presence show up. And you know what? You might pray for somebody today and they might get healed. And that's pretty cool. Even if it only happens once or twice or three times in your lifetime, it is so amazing. But I think God wants to do it more. I think God wants to do it more. So if you're here with any kind of a need, whether it's healing or a decision or something, then do one of two things. Come down to one of our wonderful prayer people down here or turn to a friend next to you and say, would you pray for me? And maybe do one other thing today, whether you do it right now or later. If you felt like God spoke to you and said, I need to add this practice to my worship as a response to today's message, I want you to tell somebody. Tell somebody in your small group, tell your family, tell somebody what you felt like God said to you this week, just as a way of taking another step to saying, yeah, God, I'm going to respond. I'm going to do what you're inviting me to do. May you go in the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. May you live this week with a greater awareness of how much he loves you. And would you live this week with the eyes to see the opportunities he's giving you to love the people around you so that they know how much he loves them too. God bless. Have a great week. We hope you encountered the love of Jesus in this message. If you'd like to be a part of the ministry God is doing through Quest, whether in person or online, go to questvineyard.org for more information. If you want to worship God by supporting Quest financially, go to questvineyard.org give. May God bless you this week as you partner with God to change the world one friendship at a time.